today's guest on the podcast is Shay Eskew. Shay is an All-American and world-ranked triathlete. He's also a burn survivor with scars over 65% of his body. He is an incredible and inspirational individual. We talk about everything from racing to gratitude to what happened in the incident that burned a great majority of his body. I'm inspired after talking to Shay. It's amazing to speak with someone who has had such a difficult time, but always manages to look on the bright side, find the good in the difficult, and always set out to finish whatever he started. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Shay Eskew. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Shay Eskew. Hi, Shay. How are you? Fantastic. Awesome. So thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I'm super excited to talk to you. We have a mutual friend, Allie, who um, is my neighbor, and you guys were, what, in third grade together? Isn't that hard to believe? I don't even <laughs> remember my age back then, but yeah, it's crazy. It's like eight. I think you're eight. My daughter's okay. eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty amazing what social media does to keep us in contact with people that you know, we were together, what, 36 years ago. Oh, my gosh. It makes us feel old is what it does. <laughs> I prefer the word wise. Wise, a- yes. Very wise. I actually received um, an email from a friend who our first grade teacher was retiring, and they wanted to get these notes and cards together for her. And my friend said, can you believe it's been, you know, 30 whatever years? And I thought, oh, my gosh, no. I feel like I was just in first grade. Yeah. I mean, we may act like that at times. But yeah. <laughs> it's hard it's to believe that. The truth. Well, Shay, so let's talk a little bit about your story. I have seen you off and on on social media for several years and obviously we're involved in the sport of triathlon and so you kind of it's, it's a big small community for sure so tell me a little bit about your story and, and what makes you so remarkable because you are remarkable so well for me it's, it's honestly quite a blessing 1982 so I was eight third grade just finished third grade uh, my mother had asked me to walk across the street and let my neighbors know they had an aggressive yellow jackets nest in the yard because the previous day my entire bicycle was swarmed by these yellow jackets. So I recruited my friend who was seven. He and I went up to the neighbor's house. We knocked on the door. The father wasn't home, but the 15-year-old daughter was. So we proceeded to tell her about these yellow jackets. And she then asked, hey, will you guys help me get rid of it? And we're like, sure, what do you need us to do? She goes, nothing. I just need you to stand here to make sure they don't leave the nest. So she grabs a match and throws it down on the hole in the ground that they're flying out of. And, of course, a match by itself does nothing. So we're standing there watching the bees fly in and out. Next thing we know, she's standing behind us and pitches a cup of gasoline. What? And the gasoline splashes me on the right side of my face and my shoulder. 
hits my buddy on the left side of his face and shoulder, hits that spark of a match. We're about 10 feet away from the match. And then immediately we're engulfed in flames. And luckily I remember to stop, drop, and roll. My buddy stood there screaming, so I was able to get a hose. So I was able to get a hose and put him out. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, just stood there alternating the hose between us, waiting for somebody to come. And basically, we soon learned that I had no insurance. My father's employment had canceled insurance on dependents. We had an estimated $2 million hospital bill with no insurance. So I was relocated with my mother from Atlanta to Cincinnati, Ohio, to the Shriners Hospital there. So there I underwent treatment from 1982 all the way up to 1995. Had about 35 surgeries with them. Pretty extensive due to the original burns. My right arm was melted to my side took me three years to lift my arm over my head, had to learn how to write left-handed to go back and finish the fourth grade. My neck was stuck at a 45-degree angle. Between that and my arm, I had, I guess, about 10 surgeries over the last, you know, 30-something years to recoup the loss of range of motion. And I originally entered the hospital with burns on 35% of my body. But they had to take skin off of my legs, my right leg from my hip to my ankle, my left leg from my hip to my knee. They took skin off half of my back, a section eight by six out of my stomach, oh my goodness. and then a section three by six off of my buttocks for skin grafts. So all in all, now I've got over 65% of my body covered in scars. Wow. Wow. What, as an eight or nine-year-old, you were probably eight or nine, what, I don't even know what to say, what happens that young with something this difficult? Like, what What was your attitude like as a young kid when this happened to you? You know, I, honestly, part of it's hard to remember, but one of the things that keeps going through your mind is what just happened? I wasn't even doing anything. You know, I'm standing there one minute, a normal kid. Um, I had grown up with very conservative Southern Baptist parents. Wasn't allowed to go to spend the night parties. Couldn't go to firework shows. Couldn't stay with a babysitter. So my whole life, all these precautions have been taken not to expose me to unnecessary risk. And now you're being told at eight, you'll never be competitive in sports again. So I think part of it was, is this really true? Mm. And and then when you saw yourself in the mirror, I remember that. Uh, first time I saw myself was a mistake because they had a strict hospital rule that no mirrors were to be kept in the room, especially the first few weeks. Right. Because your body swells about three times its normal size. So my hand, my dad said, was the size of a baseball mitt. My head was like three times its normal size and lop, lopsided. And I, re, I don't remember what I saw, but I remember I was able to use my left arm and flip open the tray that they bring um, drinks on. Yeah. 
and that little mirror popped up. And when I saw that image in the mirror, I started screaming. Oh, my goodness. And it was so uncontrollable, they had to sedate me to get me to calm down. Because I couldn't believe this was me. You know, I didn't realize the extent of my injuries until that moment. And I was, I call it fortunate, but it's, at the time, Wes Craven just released his Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And I remember distinctly a lot of kids were calling me Freddy Krueger in the hallways. Oh, wow. And when I would look in the mirror, that's what I saw. I mean, I was scared to look in the mirror because I saw Freddy Krueger. You know, and it's one of those things your parents try to console you and tell you it's going to be okay. And you're like, how do you know? You don't have any examples. You don't know anybody that's been through this that came out on the other side looking fine. Right. So how long was it? From the time you were hospitalized till you went back to school, I mean, the healing process was lengthy, right? It may surprise you. Two weeks. What? Uh, they were. I was. We were advised for me to stay out of school for the year, just to get used to being back in society. Because when you're in a hospital, you're in a very controlled environment. I looked around the room. Everybody in there was in my same situation. They were scarred, um, you know, my ear was amputated, there were several kids with amputations, so you kind of felt like you were a, a clique, you know, you were all suffering the same illness, but my parents, you know, whether it was just um, a nature of the circumstances, really believed in tough love, and so they took me to school two weeks after getting home. My mom would pick me up at school at lunch, to take me home, put me in a whirlpool bath, change all my dressings, and then take me back to school to finish out the day. And in hindsight, are you? Do you think that was the right call? Absolutely. You yeah. know, it's one of those, you know, the whole sink or swim philosophy. And so I didn't have a choice. It was you better start swimming. There's no safety net. Yeah. And I feel like that's the thing with life is so many people want to guarantee, oh, if I do this, I'm going to be successful. Or if I do this, I'm going to be famous, whatever it is. But that's not how life works. You know, the reason why opportunity exists is because people are willing to take a chance. They're willing to risk failing because they know when you fail long enough, you will do everything possible not to fail again. But and this I feel was a like new the, school, right? Because you, no, you were still in Atlanta at this time? Yeah, so it was okay. the same Laurel Ridge Elementary, so it was the same school. Okay. And a lot of these people, you, you know, I'd grown up with. And, you know, Allie could probably tell you better than myself, but nothing could prepare them either for what they were about to see. The last image they saw of me was a normal-looking kid that did well in sports, Next thing you know, he shows up, he's got scars all over his body. He's wearing plastic orthotic braces on his face, his neck, and his chest. I had to wear a compression suit that went from my ankles to my neck to my wrist. And so I don't think anything could prepare anybody for what they were about to see. And everywhere I went in public, people would stop and stare. I'd have kids come up to me, complete strangers. And you could hear them 
ooh, gross, mommy, look at him. Where's his ear? Wow. Or you could hear the parents, shh, Johnny, quit staring. Johnny, quit, quit staring. And these were kids that were and your friends? And you could friends? just feel the silence. I mean, that's what seems so weird to me. I mean, I know kids are... No, so these were just... Just strangers. But, like, what about no. the, your kids, the, the, your friends, you know, at school? I mean, it seems like they would... There would be some more understanding with you leaving one day, looking another, you know, looking one way. And then obviously you went through something. Were your close friends compassionate or was it just a total 180? No, the people I knew were definitely very attentive, compassionate. Mm -hmm. and, but there are so many that you don't know. All I knew were the rising fourth graders. I didn't know the fifth graders, sixth graders, the seventh graders, the third, second, or first yeah, grade. yeah. So, you know, I knew maybe 10% of the total school's population. And so anytime I went to a mall, if I went to church, everywhere I went, you were the eyesore. You stuck out. And when you'd walk into somewhere, you could hear just dead silence because you knew everybody was staring at you. And it's just one of those things that eventually, after you cry yourself to sleep enough, you say, you know what? This isn't going to get better these scars aren't going anywhere. This is who I am. I just need to accept it. And it was at that time that I said, you know what? Maybe if I'm a good athlete, that will make them focus on what I'm achieving on the, on the baseball field or the football field and overlook my scars. So what age did you dis did you make this decision? Do you remember or do you? Yeah, it was. I was still eight. So, I mean, I played baseball two months later after getting out of the hospital. Wow. And I wasn't very good. I couldn't throw the ball overhand. I could only throw it sidearm. And then I played football uh, four months. No, yeah, three months after baseball ended. And my dad added custom padding into my shoulder pads because the right side of my shoulder, I have no fatty tissue, no nerves, no sweat glands. And there was a fear that if I sustained a cut, I could bleed to death and never even know it. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, they realized the importance of me being out there, feeling like I was a part of a team, even though I was definitely not up to the physical abilities of everybody else out there. But people could tell from my drive that I wanted to be. You know, I was not the kid that was going to stand on the sidelines. I wasn't afraid to take a hit. You know, and I'm a big fan of the movie Rudy. I was just going to say, you sound yeah. like Rudy. <laughs> it, that's kind of, you know, I didn't know Rudy back then, but that's kind of how I saw myself that, look, I'm going to be the smallest guy. I'm going to get knocked down, but I'll always get back up. And you better be prepared for that. Be prepared to knock me down a hundred times because I'm always going to get back up. Now, I think it's one of those things that's hard to understand the value of that as a kid. Because you see everybody else achieving success and winning races and making the all-star team. But one of the things, much like triathlon, when you get into the real world, you realize it's not who's the fastest. It's who slows down the least. <laughs> and so, so many things that I've had success in, it wasn't because I was the best or the most talented. It's because I had the persistence to keep going when everybody else said, you know what? It's not for me. I'm done. 
Where does that come from? Where does that, have you always had that drive or was it born out of necessity? You know, I think both. Um, I know both of my parents are very competitive, but I think, you know, obviously getting burned when I did kind of reinforced that and it was kind of a survival skill. You realize that, hey, if I want to be relevant and stand out, I can't be like everybody else. And so one of the things I realized, I was going to have to work five times as hard as everybody else just to be normal. And as soon as you accept that, life's pretty easy. But what you also realize is because you work so hard, everything means 10 times more to you than it does a normal person. Mm -hmm. Most people can't relate to laying in a hospital bed for two months and not being allowed to get up and walk and having to learn how to walk again. And so when you finally are able to walk, you value the ability to be able to run. And I can tell you before every surgery, you will find me in my hospital room doing push-ups, jumping jacks. Because I tell myself, if I wake up and I can't do what I did before the surgery, I'm okay with it. I didn't let my talents go to waste. Wow. So you have the ability to see the good in some really tough situations. Like what is some of the self-talk that you have that you've had obviously from a very young age? I mean, is it, is it grounded in gratitude or is there just something else that always comes to mind? I mean, you obviously are really grateful for the little things that some of us take massively for granted, but you know, what is kind of the internal talk that you have? And you've had for many years through all this, all these times. You know, I'm a big believer that our biggest obstacles and disappointments are preparing us for our greatest opportunities in life. Hmm. And so anytime something really bad happens, I'm always like, God, I know you're preparing me for something awesome. I can't even comprehend what you got in store for me, but I know it's going to be awesome. So what can I learn from what you're teaching me now? And, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind, you know, sports is always an easy one. But eight years ago, I was competing in the ITU Long Course World Championships, was fortunate enough to make Team USA, and really felt I had a chance to be top 15 in the world based on the race profile, everything. On the bike portion, I sustained two flat tires in the first 10 miles of the race. Mm. Eventually, I had to ride 20 miles on a flat tire, barely moving. And the whole time going through my head at first was, I can't believe this. I've trained 11 months for the world championships. Now I don't even know if I'm going to finish. And all I could think is, you will finish. You promised your daughter before you left, you will bring her home a finisher's medal. Hmm. Whether I have to crawl, I will finish. And so at one point in the race, I literally ran six miles barefoot, pushing my bike. Oh my goodness. And lo and behold, I came across another rider that severed his tire in half, but his tack was, his tube was in check. This is world championships. I mean, what are the chance somebody gives you a tube? So this right. guy's out of the race, throws me his tube, but we don't have a CO2 cartridge. So I keep running. Another rider pulls up, throws me a CO2. 
I was able to bike, finish the 19 miles remaining on the bike portion. I still had 18 and a half miles to run on the world's hardest course. My feet were swollen, bloody, but I finished the run. I finished fourth from last. And it was amazing because I was telling my wife on the way home, she was like, you know, I'm sorry. I know how hard you trained. You thought you would do well. And I said, you know what, love? This reaffirmed to me that no matter how tough the race is, I'll always finish. I'll always find a way to get across the finish line. And then a week later, USA Triathlon called me and did a cover story on me in their 2012 Olympic Preview magazine because of my willingness to complete the race. Wow. I said, to think about it, had I quit, nobody would have known anything about my story or what I went through that day. Just another person that had a horrible day. Right. But because I persevered, stuck it out, 195,000 people saw my story. Mm-hmm. And it's still paying dividends. I still have people come up and say, hey, loved your story. I was really going through something at home. This really hit a, a nerve. I needed that. And so that's why I believe that even though you can't fathom how God's using your struggles, He's using it to impact you and most likely somebody else. And right. so it's how do we handle that that I feel can have the greatest impact. So you mentioned your daughter. How many kids do you have? Just five. <laughs> when you're good at something, you keep doing it. Just five. So what are their ages? They're really close, right? Yes, they're four, like six, eight, ten, and 12. They're all exactly two years apart, and we have... February, March, April, May, June birthdays. Oh, that's wonderful. So what's the hardest thing about parenting? Uh, so for me... Well, you're so you know, positive, maybe. What's the best thing about parenting first? <laughs> I mean, like, for I me, it allows, negatively. <laughs> it allows me to be a kid. There's so many things, and that's why my wife keeps me in check, because I can go off the deep end with the kids. Um, like, we built a two-story tree house in the backyard, because... I always wanted a treehouse as a kid. And so I had a custom treehouse guy come down. Because I thought, who wouldn't want a treehouse? Uh, but we do all kind of epic adventures. Like all of my trips, I take them. So we've been to Scotland. We just went to Yosemite. I took them to Yellowstone. I'm a big believer kids need to experience life. And let them experience failure. I try not to hide them from pain. When they're struggling, I try to see, make sure they understand how much it's benefiting them. Because so many parents want to rush in and fix everything. You know, when the kids come in crying, oh my gosh, what happened? You know, we ask them, why are you crying? Are you bleeding? Okay. <laughs> Go play. Yeah. Um, you know, the challenging part for me is I'm pretty soft on my, uh, Youngest, Stella, she's four. Oh, that's my daughter's name. Is it really? Yes. Oh, yeah. So uh, she's got me wrapped around her finger. We almost lost her two years ago to complications from a febrile seizure. Wow. And she was in a coma, induced coma for eight days. Uh, they almost had to amputate her leg because of a blood clot. I mean, she really went through the ringer. And so I, I feel like I kind of give her 
a hall pass on some things. <laughs> she gets some free passes. Um, whereas, you know, when she gets a little older, I can tighten up the rules. But right now, she's kind of got a hall pass on some of this. So, febrile seizures. I had but, you know, I think as a baby. Where did those... What's the newest research on those? What What do they think causes those? So, number one, they can't prove that's what it was because mm-hmm. she only had a 100.1 temperature. Which really isn't that big of a deal. Right. But everything they've done, all the tests, they said that's the only thing it could be because sometimes it's not how high your fever gets. It's how quick it spikes from 98.6 to 100.1. Because she started seizing, but she aspirated and swallowed, you know, while she was vomiting. And so that's what caused all the major complications. And if it is what they think it is, we may never have to deal with it again. Right. Typically, you outgrow the febrile seizures by the time you're six. Um, the challenge with, with her was, was hers was a complex one. So she was seizing for two hours straight. Oh, my goodness. And were you home? Were you there? And so, thank God, I was literally two miles from the house, which I travel every week. And, again, praise God that my wife was sitting next to her on the couch. She was just 10 minutes before out playing in the backyard with the other kids. Wow. So she could have easily died out in the backyard with the other kids because of the aspiration. Um, that's why we said it was just a miracle that she did it sitting next to my wife. My wife was watching, was able to turn it on her side to make sure she didn't you know, choke in it. And the fact I was two miles from home to be there. Wow. And the fact that we had Vanderbilt which has one of the best children's hospitals in the world, was, you know, 12 minutes away. And, you know, I kept praying the whole way to the emergency room. I was like, God, you know, just use this. I don't know what you've got in store. I trust you. Because I was already coming to terms that she was going to have brain damage. Right. And as soon as we walked in, the doctor says, you know what? You have nothing to worry about, no brain damage. She was getting oxygen the whole time. I was like, hey, you know what? We got this. And, you know, we spent a total of 11 days in the NICU. And then you looked around, you couldn't help but feel grateful because you know so many of those kids aren't going home. And we were. And we went to Yellowstone two weeks later. And that was one of those things my wife's like, should we really be doing this? And I said, babe, we can't quit living. If, if it happens again, no matter whether you're at home or out in the middle of the woods, it's going to happen. Right. And so I'm just a big believer. You can't let things outside your control dictate how you live your life. Speaking of outside of your control, the sport of triathlon. <laughs> <laughs> that is one outside of your control sport. Am I right? A hundred percent. Oh my goodness. So how did you take the dive into multi-sport? Again, this is kind of a God thing, but in 2008, I was working in a high rise downtown Atlanta and every day I'd go down at lunch and work on the gun show. I do my curls, my bench press, you know, all the <laughs> stuff that makes you look good in a t-shirt. And this 65-year-old man comes up to me. He's got this military haircut, big barrel-chested man. He goes, hey, tough guy. I'm like, you talking to me? 
He said, yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> he goes, why don't you come in and do my boot camp class? It's just me and a bunch of women. Shouldn't be anything for a guy like you with all your muscles. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. Who old is time. this guy? That's so funny. <laughs> Completely setting me up. Right. And keep in mind, I was almost 40 pounds heavier than what I am now. So I go in there. First 10 minutes, I'm in tears. And true to form, it's all women. There might be one other guy in there. But, I mean, we're doing hip flexors, leg raises, planks, all this crap that I never had worked out. And then at the end of the class, he goes, all right, push-ups. And I tell myself, I'm going to bury this old bird. <laughs> he drops down beside me and just starts counting out the push-ups. I couldn't keep up with him. And finally, he goes, Eskew, ponytails is kicking your butt. You better pick it up, boy. <laughs> and all I could say was, yes, sir. And I went home that night to my, I said, I just got my ass kicked by a 65-year-old man. <laughs> and so I went back to his class every day for the next three months. Got back into what I call fighting shape, dropped 20 pounds. He and I became really good friends when we were talking and I had learned he was one of the original 1978 Ironmen. No. Oh, he was a cool. former Marine drill sergeant. He'd also raced the Ironman at 62 with his daughter. Then he got stage four pancreatic cancer. He was given three months to live. He made it a year. And right before he died, a group of us in the class said, Henry, we're going to the next big triathlon. I don't care the distance. We're going to do it. So we had... Four months to get ready for the Gulf Coast Half Ironman, which is a 1.2-mile ocean swim, 56-mile bike, and a 13.1 half marathon, literally through hell. I mean, it's they call it the Gulf Roast because it's such a hot course. <laughs> yes, I have done that race, and my husband just yeah. did it this past May. It is quite warm. So that was my first open-water swim. That was my first triathlon period. Wow. I didn't even own a bike two months before. I bought one off Craigslist. I had not ran more than five miles twice in my entire life. And I finished, I think, five hours, 38 minutes. And I was like, you know what? It wasn't that bad. Imagine if I knew what I was doing. That's really fast, by the way. So <laughs> I the way, signed up. For anyone up. listening, that is an impressive halftime. <laughs> so... A week later, me and a bunch of people were all celebrating, toasting Henry, and somebody says, let's do the Ironman. Same course, five months. So I signed up. <laughs> and so I did the Florida Ironman. You know, I was now nine months into training and finished it 10 hours, 31 minutes. Oh, my goodness. That is screaming fast. Wow. And so I was happy. I was like, you know what? And this was just reading a book. Again, I still didn't really know fully what I was doing, but I bought this book called Be Iron Fit mm -hmm. and followed it to a T. And I really subscribed to the heart rate training. I was like, this isn't rocket science, and you really don't have to be a great athlete. If you just put in the time and if you can learn to block your mind out of it, you can do quite well. And that's what I love. You show up the races. When you see these people that are all ripped and huge chest and biceps, I was like, those guys are nothing. 
it's usually the skinny dorky guy you better watch out for he's gonna <laughs> put it to you so when you say block out your mind what do you mean by that and how does one block out their mind yeah so for me it's when you get if you go hard enough when you get into it you know anybody can suffer through one hour two hour race it's when you start getting into four, five, and even ten hours. It's a whole different ball game. You go through every gamut of emotion you can imagine. I tell people, if you could film me racing, it'd be hysterical. Because at one minute I'm screaming, I'm like, "Woo! <laughs> I'm killing it!" You know, I mean, I'll say this as I'm riding. And then another moment, you know, I'm in tears because you start thinking about. All the training you've put in, and, you know, the sacrifices you made. And then 20 minutes later, you're on top of the world again. Yeah, I'm an Iron Man. It's just crazy <laughs> the highs and the lows you go through. And then you learn how to, all right, um, halfway through the bike. I'm 80% done with the bike. I'm, you know, I break it down to these small milestones. And inevitably, there's always a moment where you're like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. <laughs> Every time. What sane person would be out here for 10 hours and paying money to do this? This is crazy. Or 17 hours in my case. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I and do then, it for seven more hours because I want my money's worth. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think it's harder if you stay out there longer. Right. I haven't figured out how to make that not happen. So. <laughs> but, but you keep telling yourself. It'll be better next time. But how many people would, would be done up to do this? You can be different. You know, your whole life has prepared you for this. And then I keep telling myself, it's mental. You know, physically, you can do this. It's just mental. And I think once you latch on to, you can really do something, just block it out. Life, in general, takes on a whole different meaning. And one of the things I like to do is ask people that tell me they can't ever do an Ironman. I said, all right, if we meet tomorrow... Could you do a run walk for 15 minutes? We're not judging on speed. Can you run walk for 15 minutes? They're like, absolutely. I said, all right. If so if we meet the next day, could you ride a bike for 30 minutes? Again, we're not judging on speed. Can you just ride a bike for 30 minutes? They said, sure. I say, in 30 weeks, you're an Ironman. You sat here and told me you couldn't do it, but when I break it down to what you need to do each day, you you said you could do it. And I think that's so true with life in general is people just see this big audacious goal and can't wrap their head around what they need to do tomorrow so they never attempt it. Right. But if somebody can help them break it down to the baby steps, then they can do it. And that's why I love because what I've learned in Ironman has set me up tremendously in my professional career. I've applied the same time management skills, goal setting, and then the ability to break down the big goals into the, the small components that will help you reach your goal. It's so true. It's so true. I convince myself, like as far as breaking down everything into smaller pieces, I convince myself so well on the bike that I'm only in the moment doing 10 miles at a time that when I actually get off the bike and I go to transition, I'm completely surprised that I have to run <laughs> like really it, yes every in Ironman in halves it's not the same but yes I get in the transition tent and you know the volunteer will say oh just the run and I'm like oh yeah 
oh man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I literally talk myself into it because it's so, you know, I stay so tunnel vision. That's the only way I can do it is, is to break it down into small pieces and really focus on the yeah, moment. You know, but, and I think one of the things too, and I think one of the other things is going in knowing it's going to suck at some point. Right. And, you know, we call it embracing the suck. And so when you start reaching that point in the race, you say, hello, hey, I know you're coming. Mm-hmm. I'm not scared of you. I, you know, you're going to bug me for these next three hours, but I'm okay with it. And a lot of people say, you know what, I'm going to just count to 100. If I feel the same way, we'll see. Then they right. get to, you know, then they get to 100. All right, I'm going to count to 100 one more time. <laughs> I mean, this is world champions that do this. Yeah. You and then you realize. Do. Yeah. You know, those kind of feelings pass. And it's, again, it's just your brain talking to you, but physically, you're more than capable of doing it. Right. And I think a lot of times, you know, you're absolutely right. It is so much mental and, and we are all capable physically of doing these amazing things. And we don't want to yeah. admit that or we don't, I don't know what it is, but I, I never have gone into any race thinking I would not finish. I go into every race, no matter, matter the distance, assuming I'm going to finish that race. Yeah. And I think if you don't do that, you're, you're, you're posed from the beginning. And I think it's the conviction that no matter what happens, you will finish. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just raced Sunday in Wisconsin at Madison and you know, I haven't been in a pool in seven months. I have a torn rotator cuff, torn labrum, and tendonitis in my bicep. So my left shoulder is useless. But I said, I know I can get through the swim. It's not going to be pretty. Right. And it took me 49 minutes. Uh, we had torrential rain, chop out there in the water. But I didn't panic. I just stayed the course. When I got on the bike, I started hammering. I had two flat tires. Man, um, you got it. What is with you uh, and tires? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I've done 61 races and I've only had two flats. Oh, okay. So, you know, law of num- big numbers, you know, you're going to have these kind of days. Yeah. And so when I had the second flat, I was like, crap, there was nobody in sight. So I ran again barefoot, pushing the bike. And at one mile, I came across people working the course. They called the bike band to come. So I stood out there for almost an hour total waiting. And I just kept saying, you know what? You got to finish. And not only that, but you got to still do the same effort as if it meant something. Right. Because it's tempting to say, well, what's the use now? You know, I'm not going to get anything. And for me, it's, hey, I trained this hard. I want to feel that same effort. I want to feel the struggle at mile 10 on the run and wondering what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and that, you know, I still finished six hours and 10 minutes after an hour on the side of the road. Oh my goodness. Shay. On arguably the hardest course. <laughs> and it meant a lot to me, you know, it's my worst time ever in a half Ironman. But again, just reaffirming that 61 races, I have never not finished. And right. And I can tell you, I know too many elite athletes that would just call it quits because they couldn't be competitive. And I'm not dissing 
the way they race. It's just for me, I'm the kind of guy that I will always finish what I start. And that's yeah. in everything in life. I'm that kind of girl too. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and one of the things you're talking about mentally, I tell everybody, it's kind of like when you have kids. If somebody really sat you down and told you every single thing that you would endure <laughs> as a parent, you'd be like, hell no, I'm doing this. <laughs> right. But once you do it, you're like, well, God, how to finish five. this? <laughs> you know, you don't have, you can't quit. Right. And then that's how you're like, well, let's have another kid. It wasn't that bad. And then that amnesia sets in again. And then two years later, you're like, well, you want to try this again? <laughs> but, it, you know, and I think that's the way life's meant to be. It's, it's meant to have a struggle. And that's what makes life so rewarding. If things came easy, we wouldn't even know what the word opportunity was. Opportunity just happens to be a byproduct of perseverance and continue to work hard. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the big book that's coming out in September. Yes. So after some very heavy nudging uh, from Jack Daly, somebody you should check out, he told me, Shay, you have no excuse not to write your book. I hear you that you're busy, but promise me, I promise you, you can do it. So I finished the book. I'm in, I guess, round two of editing. And the title will be What the Fire Ignited, basically playing off me getting burned at eight, how that really set things in motion for me, kind of just forced upon me a new mindset. So we're targeting end of September for this to be available. So hopefully it will be out there for all of you to see everything that I've went through. Uh, there's a lot of things people don't realize that went on behind the scenes that impacted me, you know, spiritually, mentally, and physically. It's exciting. It's really exciting. I think it's fantastic that, I mean, you've got an amazing story and you have an even more amazing attitude and an even more amazing race time. <laughs> You just said your slowest uh, half was 6'10". I mean, you're an incredible athlete, Shay. You know that. I'm a competitor. I mean, just incredible, really. And you're going to South Africa, South Africa for the world championships. Let's not forget that. That's a huge deal. Well, that one's different because so every year, Worlds falls on my anniversary. And for you know, this is the Ironman 70.3. Right. And so they rotate the venue every year. So once they started doing that, my wife got really active in the race selection. <laughs> and so usually when they announce the new one, she's like, oh, yeah, you better make it happen. I love it. I want to go. And so we've been to Zell MC, Austria, Malubaba, Australia. Uh, we've been to Edinburgh, Scotland to compete, London, Montreblanc, Canada. And for me... I love it. I mean, she's not putting pressure on me, but it gives me kind of a higher sense of purpose. And so when I start struggling in the race and you know, I just remind myself, hey, you're doing this for her. You're doing it for the kids. Um, it makes you feel good, you know, to give you a higher purpose than just doing it for yourself. Yeah. Are you going to do anything fun in South Africa? Are you all going to do a safari or anything like that? Oh, yeah, we are. We're going for two weeks. Good for you. 
So I haven't got it all mapped out, but we're doing a week there in Port Elizabeth, which is where the race is at Nelson Bay. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to do a week in Cape Town after that. So I have to keep a lot of it on the download because my wife finds out what I plan. She usually freaks out. <laughs> it's always easier to surprise her and ask for forgiveness, forgiveness yeah. than ask so, for permission. So I went to South Africa in 1997 for the Junior World Weightlifting Championships. That's That was wow. my sport back then. And so... We did a similar thing. So I went and competed. And then my coach and a couple of my other teammates, we went to Kruger National and did a safari. And that was really cool. I I just don't know that I would have had the opportunity to do that, you know. And so it was it was such a great experience. And I've never seen stars as many stars as I have in the middle of nowhere in Africa. I mean, it was just mind boggling. So if you guys can do that, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard one negative thing about South Africa. I mean, everybody says it's their top destination. It's beautiful. So, but you know, that's one of the cool things I think about triathlons and just multi sports. It's, it takes you places you normally wouldn't go on your own. You know, people always say, well, can't you just go there as a vacation? You won't, though. But you won't. You know, we've never been to these places, but somehow when you say, hey, I've qualified to go to Australia. Well, now you kind of have to go. Yeah. It's like that one. You know, we spent a week in Australia, a week in New Zealand. And so these experiences you get, and it's cool to to go there and compete and meet a lot of these other athletes, learn a bit about their culture. I feel very yeah. Very cool. So I have one more question for you. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, which means we're all given the same 24 hours in our days. But it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes our best lives possible. So what is something that you, Shay, do something do on a daily basis that you believe contributes to your best life? You know, so there's several things. I don't know if I can say just one, but one of it, it's everything I do, I put on my calendar. And then I share with my wife. She knows, hey, I'm going to get up at four. I'm going to start working out at five. That's my time. You know, unless something crazy is coming, that's where you'll find me. But I also try to understand, hey, what's important to you? So one of the things that she expressed, you know, 10 years ago is she wanted two days to sleep in and recover. So Saturday and Sundays, she sleeps in and gets breakfast in bed. Oh. And so Saturdays, what I do is I get up, I ride my bike two hours, I'll stop, make breakfast, make sure everybody's good, and then an hour later, finish my bike ride. And then Sundays, I'll just do my, you know, like I do a, say, a 15-mile run. I'll wait and do it after the kids go to bed that night. Mm-hmm. So I'm really big on making sure that the workouts don't interfere with family time because if they do, you're going to have a resentful spouse and feel like you're missing out on your kids' activities. Um, I've never scheduled any of my races during my kids' sporting events. And I think one of the big things I hear from people is, well, I don't have an hour to go work out. Well, do 30 minutes. Do 20 minutes. Something is better than nothing. I mean, I've got times where I'll just do 15-minute run and, and that's it. Right. I, I struggle do. with that. I, I, yeah. feel, I feel like if I can't do the whole hour, that's where my, one of my big hang-ups is, is I don't just do the little things. But that's such a good point. Do what you can. Absolutely. And so 
you know, and sometimes it's like for my long bike rides, I'll do an hour and a half in the morning and then an hour and a half once everybody's went to bed. Mm-hmm. And waking up early is a huge, huge thing. That is so, such a lifesaver. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I don't know. Cause I, when people tell me they wait and work out after, you know, their day's over. I would never do it. <laughs> it never happens. Something no. keeps popping up, work, kids, or you're just, you know, worn out. And so when you can make it the first thing you do when you wake up, I mean, I have a routine. I get up at four, I walk the dog 15 minutes, I make my Starbucks coffee and two frozen blueberry waffles, and then I read for 20 minutes and then send emails for another 10 to 15. So that's my routine every single day. Mm-hmm. So, and then you train your body, hey, this is what how it works. Yeah, and it gets used to it. I mean, I've been, I do that too. I get up super early. And then I write and then when everyone else wakes up, then I'll work out or whatever, you know, but I have a set morning schedule too and it starts super early. And today I decided to sleep in and I got up and I put on my tri shorts because I was going to run and it is now 3.30 and I'm still in my tri shorts (laughs) (laughs) and I have not run and I keep thinking, okay, you know, when am I going to do it? Um, If I don't do it in the morning, it just... Yeah, I'll sit in my tri shorts all day and then I'll just get a shower. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I said, something to me is better than nothing. Yeah. But likewise, on the same token, it's just some days you can't get it in. You know, I've had days where I've had to be at the airport at 430. And so on those days, I mean, I struggle with this still, but you have to let it go. Right. You can't kill yourself to get a, a workout in. You'll be so much more rested just to, Call today, get a good night's sleep, start over the next day. Right. Don't try to double down and make up for the missed workout the next day. Right. Well, thank you so much, Shay. This was great talking to you. And I'll tell Allie you said hello. Awesome. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe I'll, I need to get back down there and see everybody. It's when I come in town, you just can't see everybody. I know. But if you see, if you do, I'm right down a couple houses down. So we have to. Make it happen if you come. Maybe to I area. should just post on Facebook. All right, all my peeps from. <laughs> you come to me. <laughs> here's where I'm going to be. Make it happen. Yeah, that's brilliant. Let's make it a block party. Well, I look forward to reading your book and best of luck in South Africa. Thank you and so much. We'll keep following you. You're an Absolutely. inspiration. Well, thanks for the invitation, Meredith. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>